Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's me, Rosie O'Donnell, and happy Halloween! Happy Halloween. I can't resist the candy corn. When I go to CVS to get my medicine, there's the candy corn always around this time. And you know, I'm not even a real fan of candy corn, but I like having it out in a dish in my house. It makes it feel like it's Halloween. And you know, when I was much younger, uh, my first go-round as a mom with my four little ones, who are now 21 to 28. So they're all uh, big uh, big kids. But we used to have the greatest display in our yard. Like we bought everything that you could buy in terms of blow up, lit up, moving things, you know? And uh, we used to have beer for the adults and, and water and uh, juice for the kids and haystacks to sit on. And it was so amazing. Well, my kiddo, Dakota, who is now going by Clay, but wants me to call them Dakota. So I know it's confusing, but um, just so we know, there's only uh, one kid and uh, they are going to be 11 in January. Well, they had their first Halloween party on the weekend and um, it was thrilling, I have to say to see them so excited. It was just a couple kids because big crowds don't do, don't do so well with uh, their nervous system. And so we had a small group, but it, fun was had by all, I could tell you that. And uh, I'm happy to have the distraction of Halloween. Quite honestly, it's kind of hard to uh, talk about what's going on in the world. And I haven't really been doing TikToks. It's uh, a troubling time for so many PTSD and uh, people who, like me, have very thin membranes in the world, like things seem to permeate inside me in a, in a manner that is debilitating to me. So I feel completely debilitated by what what's going on in the Mideast. I feel debilitated by 
the white male American terrorist who shot up two towns in Maine, a bowling alley and a billiards place, uh, killing so many. Uh, the Speaker of the House, who's a Trumper. The problem with having a Trumper is that you end up with someone like Netanyahu uh, running your country, and that doesn't serve its people. So I don't know what to say. We did this interview a couple days ago with my really good friend, uh, Charles Bush, who is so wonderful. He is just uh, amazing. He's written a memoir, and he's brought uh, so many people, so much entertainment. He's, uh, how do you explain Charles, you know? Uh, Charles is an author of an out laugh-out-loud memoir called Leading Lady, A Memoir of a Most Unusual Boy, and the title does not lie. Charles grew up like like uh, the movie and the play Mame, the musical Mame, you know? He had an Auntie Mame, and her name was Lil, and she went on to adopt him after his mom died when he was quite young, and he became a theater writer, award-winning, a playwright, a theater actress, a drag legend, way before anyone, including Charles, thought that drag would become legendary and as popular as it is today in, in our culture. Leading Lady, is it's a wonderful book. It's filled with big names, and Charles drops them eloquently, including mine. There's a chapter on our time with Boy George, uh, creating that monster show called Taboo. Um, and it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, but I have zero regrets. I really, I really think everything in your life takes you to where you are in this moment and living in the present is, is the only way to do it. So we're going to give you, uh, you know, 50 minutes of a very entertaining, intelligent, kind, loving artist named Charles Bush. Sit back and enjoy a conversation with Charles Bush. Well, hello, Charles Bush. It's lovely to see you, even though it's only virtually. It's better than nothing. You're damn I'm, right. It's better than nothing. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. And uh, yeah, I'm just so looking forward to, to chatting with you. It's been, been so long. And, and uh, of course, I, yeah, here I've written this book, and I, uh, there's a big chapter about you. I, was, I, hope you, I hope you approve. I approve. I read it. I was like, that was a crazy time. Whatever anybody's experience was, I'm going to validate because it was not a great time for me, you know, getting sued and leaving my show and not really figuring out what was happening there on the set of Taboo. Oh, you know, thing you were just criticized right and left. You could, just couldn't win. Exactly, couldn't win. But you know what? I'm proud of that show. I think you did a great job. I think that George wasn't in the best shape right then, and in, in his life as a person who struggles with addiction. And um, you know, I think we had a lot of things against us. But you know that Stephen Sondheim said before he died, he thought it was one of the most underrated musicals of his lifetime. Oh yeah. I, I was so, da- you know, I, I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. I find particularly when something's so kind of fresh disaster, uh, you know, I can't really see anything good about it. But, right, but right. Afterwards, you know, Tony Kushner and Susan Stroman would tell me how much they, they love Taboo. And I thought, well, they're pretty smart people. I better, you know, uh, 
you know, reevaluate it. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, you can't, you know, in the midst of the tragedy, like, it, it feels so overwhelming, and you think you'll never, ever get through it and survive it. And I loved doing it. I loved getting to be a part of it. I, I didn't fully understand what I was getting into, but I'm thankful to this day that you said yes to me, and I'm sorry we didn't go on the Concord. <laughs> that's how you that's how you were seducing me but even that's, still, i love when you wrote that i thought was i maybe i was i definitely wanted you to do it when i saw it i thought this there's no book here there's no real story and who would get the humor and the pathos and the pathos i guess that's the word yeah. uh i thought of you because you know i i know i've told you this charles in person but tale of the allergist wife was the funniest thing that I ever saw in a theater in my life. I could not believe. Now, I've also, I have to remind you, I knew nothing about it when I went in. Uh -huh. I just knew it was Linda Lavin. And I went in and I was completely blown away. And then I was in my Charles Bush uh, uh. wormhole and I've never left. <laughs> You're an incredibly talented guy. And I'm so happy that our paths crossed and that and you were generous enough to try to do this impossible thing with me. <laughs> yeah, well, at first, I, you know, I thought it was kind of a nutty idea. And then, you know, after we spent some time together, first of all, I was touched by the, uh, it's so rare that somebody goes into a project like you, you did with this with such a pure motive, mm. that you really wanted to do something artistic with people that you respect. And it just, and, and it annoyed me that after it was over that you weren't given credit for that. So anyway, yeah, it was it was a very bad time. You know, I, I think that when when somebody uh, makes a big move, like you know, to to leave that show was hard for some people. People were mad, you know. And then I got sued by the magazine, and it was like a year of bad press, maybe even two, and, and it was just icky. But but I have fond memories of it. You know, I put on the soundtrack, the cast album oh, yeah? sometimes. Yes. And yeah. I, I love remembering the auditions. I loved remembering, like, to tell Brooke to go get a little punked out before she came back and belted <laughs> it. You know, like, I felt like, oh, my God, this is Judy and, and Mickey and I'm doing well, it. You know? Yeah. But I do remember, though, one kind of outrageous thing, though, with you that when we were uh, having auditions for uh, the part of Big Sue, yes, and we're all sitting there behind the table, you know, the tribunal, and Liz McCartney uh, walked in, and she was fantastic. And and before anyone else could say anything, you you said, "Honey, welcome to Broadway, your Broadway show." Exactly. Well, I didn't even I know you had to talk to the other people. I you know. I whispered. I whispered to the director. I said. Do we just cast the lead the show? <laughs> he said, yes, okay. But thank I God, she, did. Was, she was great. I mean, she was the best one who auditioned. And that part meant so much to me, that role, you know, of kind of the fat friend with the gay guy and wanting to be a part of something, but not knowing how to fit in. And yes. I, I just felt like that was a, uh, that spoke to me, that part. And, huh. and we had had such trouble in the auditions. I'm like, where's the person who's going to knock this song out of the, yeah. out of the park? And she sure did, didn't she? 
Yes, and she was pregnant. Didn't she stay in the yes. show? Wasn't she about nine months pregnant? Yeah, she was nine months when we opened or something like that. Uh, yeah. But fond memories. I loved your book, and I can't believe that it took you 12 years to write it, although <laughs> you were writing plays in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had about four plays in between, so I, I took a break. And I did, but I just didn't know really uh, what form it was going to be. And I would go to the bookstores and look up, oh, see, uh, yeah. Lena Dunham, what how'd she do her book? Oh, it's all short stories. Oh, maybe it should be that. And then then I'd look at somebody else's book and oh, it starts in a chapter one, I am born. Or maybe it ought to be that one. But right, right. it ended up after all those years being exactly where I started out. And uh, I, I'm very happy with it. It's it's got a strange structure. It's it's mostly chronological, but then I go off on detours as we would if we we're telling our story, you know, to friends in our right, right. Room. So it's something like I, I was a, a good example, I guess, would be that you know I grew up in New York City, and my Aunt Lillian, who's really the leading lady of the title, leading lady, yes, uh, yes, started taking me to Broadway shows when I was about eight, and so in the book I'll say that that one of the shows we saw was uh, Hello, Dolly! with Carol Channing, which then reminds me of when I shared a dressing room with her at, at a fundraiser uh, you know, 40 years later. So, Tell yes. everyone that story, please. Uh, yeah, well, um, this is kind of what happens to me is, I, you know, I've had this career as a, I guess, a male actress, and maybe it's, I don't know what to call myself, but I'm an actress. But that's perfect, but a male actress. It's, it's You've won awards yeah. for your for your acting, and you play a grand dam like yeah. no one else does, Charles. It's, it's, it's almost like you're channeling something. Yeah, well, that's a really good way of putting it. It just kind of comes out of me. Uh, and a- anyways, but consequently, often I end up being put in in the woman's dressing room and nobody seems to blink no no right. woman is no woman has ever said excuse me uh, why are you in here no i'm just kind of accepted as as one of them so what one time it was i think maybe uh one of the equity fights aids things like uh, gypsy of the year or something like that or uh or easter bond competition and so uh my friend carl and i arrived and we were s- sent up to this big communal dressing room and at the new amsterdam theater and and then uh, Mario Cantone is a, a friend of all of us. Ours, yes, wonderful guy. Said and said said, do you know you're in the, the women's dressing room? I said, no, I'm not. And he goes, yeah, look, you know, I'm downstairs with Brian Stokes Mitchell and Patrick Stewart, and you're here with Betty Buckley and Audra McDonald. And, <laughs> and also at that point, Carol Channing walks in with her her husband Charles Lowe, and they say hello to us. And then she sits down next to me at the dressing table, and we're putting on our makeup and and she's doing this you know wild stylized you know old time broadway makeup. right and and we're all just you know fascinated seeing carol channing putting on her her face and she i'm putting on my false eyelashes and she says she says oh i can't, can't wear false eyelashes anymore because i have a permanent eye infection but uh, so then she starts taking a black eyebrow pencil just drawing stripes black stripes on her eyelids. I'm thinking, I don't think this is going to work, you know, but we're, we're just wrapped, fascinated watching her. And when she finally uh, finished, she just turned and her face was maybe three inches to mine. And she said, how do I look? And I pulled back a bit and I said, you look like her. And that's exactly <laughs> what you need to hear. You know, because that's right. what we all want is just, yes. can I still turn the trick? Can I still be who I was? And she did, and and then she got it. That was what she needed to hear. She got up, and she could now hang out with Carol Burnett. So wild. She once came into the dressing room of uh, Greece when I was there, and Bobby Pierce was my dresser. No. And he he's a 
wonderfully talented Tony nominated costume designer. He's a <clears throat> big guy. We look alike, kind of. We similar right. features. And so I was in the shower when Carol Channing came in to say hello. <laughs> and Bobby was there talking and saying, yes, uh huh. And I walked out and I said, oh, Carol Channing. And she said, hello, darling. Wasn't Rosie wonderful? And pointed to Bobby. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. So I just went with it, you know. The thing in your book that I, I loved is, of course, your Auntie Mame life. You really do have, you have lived a life of Auntie Mame. Yeah. And I've always thought of it like that when you've told me stories about your aunt. And yeah. it's, and in the book, you get to see some of the twists and the dark things. Like, I was shocked to find out that your aunt pitted you against your dad. Yeah. Well, you know, think of it with our parents. Uh, you, your mom died when you were 10. Yeah, when, when I was seven, yeah. And, seven, uh, yes. Uh, and the thing is, and I, don't, I don't think you necessarily have to forgive a parent everything, but I think if you can try to understand and put in context uh, the mistakes they made. And, and, and I have to say, my aunt really, you know, there was, basically, she made every right choice for me. I mean, mm. it, I really it just kind of over everything. Was, yeah. But, uh, you know, she was human. And and I thought it was important in the book not just to paint a completely idealized uh, portrait of her. I don't think she really would have appreciated that. You know, she was such an honest, honest person. So I thought, you know, the, the couple things that she, you know, did wrong, but out of her own uh, emotions, you know, she really just hated my father, and she had pretty good reason actually for being right, right. disturbed by his irresponsibility and at one point but she, you felt torn between yeah but it was you know, yes. i don't think you should ever really try to alienate someone from another person and right. she just couldn't help it at a certain point she she tried she really tried for the first uh years after my mother died she, you know even though my father was so irresponsible she thought it was important that i had this strong male figure so mm. she defended him and and all that and at a certain point she just couldn't take it anymore she just couldn't take it. So suddenly she just dropped this illusion and, and my, turned my father into this Dickensian kind of villain. And it was kind of hard because he was so much fun, you know? Right. You know, and he never, you know, he never hit us. He was never drunk. He was, you know, he, my father was absolutely just basically 17 years old and never, you know, uh, never grew up and, and, uh, fun, affectionate, loved old movies, uh, yeah, but that, but he was you know, really just so careless and uh, irresponsible, and um, and I, I finally you know had to, I you know I was so connected with my aunt who you know was at this point had you know adopted me, so I just um, felt I had I basically had to choose, and and that was very hurtful, and and but fortunately at the end of my father's life um, I was able to somehow try to heal myself of of this coldness and and express feel some kind of affection for him and you know and, and he he just was so completely uncritical he'd accepted whatever you threw at him right right so so i had at the end you know the last few years you know, it was yeah after, that's important i think after you my know? aunt had died i was able to somehow visit my father in florida and you know just embrace him and it was good for both of us yeah, I think that when you don't have that, which I didn't get with my dad, wow. I, I think it, it always leaves you somewhat longing, 
you I, know, I'm sure before he passed. But you know, choices we make and and where we find ourselves, you never would expect when you were a child. I was very surprised to find out that as much as she embraced your feminine side, yeah, she was a little flipped out that you were gay. Yeah, that was a surprise because she was just a real, you know, classic liberal Democrat. You know, yeah. but, uh, I, again, I have to kind of get give her a little bit of slack in that it was 1973 mm-hmm. and you know gay imagery was still pretty horrible in the media and right she, and as much as she was a sophisticated new yorker she really didn't have gay friends it's a pity you know she would have had a much less lonely um old age you right know, she, you know if uh if she just had had a group of you know gay guys who thought she was fabulous but it would have been very helpful to her but um no yeah it was when she kind of kind of confronted me in college it was sort of obvious what was going on. She said, so are, are you gay? And and I said, yeah. And she flipped out. She just, you know, sobbed and, and was so misinformed. And, you know, and, but I think in a way, she, sex to her was not a big deal. Like she, you know, right, right. her husband died, you know, she never went on a date or anything or, you know. So I, I think that she what she couldn't quite get was like, why would, you know, in 1973, why would you want to be, you know, gay when right. this, you know, you're completely shunned by society? Yes. You know, uh, just because and you get, you're going to go through all that just for for sex? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It seems so. That's a lot of work, a lot to give up. But yeah. it's not just the sex, as we no, know. She just didn't understand. She just didn't, yeah, yeah. But, you know, later, of course, you know, whenever I would I would bring boyfriends home to meet her or whatever, she was couldn't have been nicer to them and lent one money when he was in trouble. Um, really, we just never discussed the romantic or sexual aspect of the relationship. Yeah, that's so funny. It's so different. Can you imagine that we have lived this long yeah. that we have seen such a change in the way homosexuality is presented in in mainstream media and in the culture now which it was just devoid we were just we had like i keep telling people like there were no role models i what i remember first is billy jean king denying that she was gay and martina denying because i was looking for gay role models and i thought i saw them in those women but then you know at 10 when i was watching tv in 73 there they were saying that now they had to at the time uh-huh. it was terrifying right yeah. nobody knew no, what and, to do or how to come out and in movies you know there are television there were there were no uh, role models in you know or anyone you could watch in a movie that wasn't just like a villain or a killer you know? right yeah yeah or, or or a terrible victim and that's of course what my aunt is what was watching and just thinking, oh i don't want that for my kid of course, yeah. of yeah. course. Yeah. Now, I know uh, that you had two sisters, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you were very close to your older one. Well, both my sisters were older. I have, one, I have a sister who's, um, uh was uh, two and a half years older than I have a sister who's 10 years older who it, it's I don't have a close relationship with. But my I was extraordinarily close with my middle sister who just passed away in July. And Yeah, I was going to say that must have been very, horrible. It's very difficult. I, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever get over this one. Yeah. We were, we were so almost like em- empaths with each other. Mm. Really could feel what the other one was feeling from long distances. I mean, it was, it was you know, I'm not that kind of woo-woo person, but right. so many instances where, you know, where I would be walking down the street and, and suddenly feel this kind of like, 
kind of clutch in, in, in my heart. And, and then later I'd find out that my sister had fainted. Oh. You know, it, it's, wow. And, and we never, you know, um, when we became the same age, basically, when I was 16 and she was 19, you know, we, we used to fight as kids, you know, but we became sure. the same age at 16 and 19. And at that point, we never had a single moment of tension between us. Not, I mean, it was odd. I mean, you know, yeah. It's almost like you were twins. Like twins, just not a moment of disagreement, just total, just trying to pr- protect each other, just love and protection. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's just very difficult. I, 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 and I just don't know how to, how to get quite over this. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, time goes by and, you know, but at the moment it's still very fresh. And about five times a day, I reach for the phone, like, oh, I got to tell mm. her thing. Oh, I got, I mean, I, I'm sure in an hour I'm going to say, oh, I got to tell her about what Rosie just said. You know, right, right. Yeah, but I understand. Know, an afternoon with her at one time. Yes, I yeah. remember. She's so cute. Yeah. Adorable. And you guys, you know, you guys uh, really had that Tweedledee and Tweedledum kind of finishing each other's sentences. Well, yes. And we spent so much time growing up uh, in the bathroom mirror, you know, doing faces and, and impersonations for each other. And, you know, my uh, Betty Davis wasn't nearly as good as her James Cagney. your aunt as well has passed away and that i i read in the book that i didn't know that you were very close with joan rivers that you like used her as a surrogate mother kind of well yes i mean i i I don't i hope i don't give the impression that you know i was like the closest thing in her no 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 i was kind of i always think i was a second tier friend of hers (laughs) that's okay the second tier is pretty good yeah and sat next to her every year at thanksgiving yeah. And, right. Uh, so yeah. Oh, I just adored her. But I get you know throughout my life. I, I wonder if this is happens with with you because you know since we we bonded over the fact that we lost our mother. So yes, girl, exactly. I, I just get these big crushes on certain kind of lady who's so do I. And maternal and smart and uh, yeah, I just get big crushes. And and Joan was kind of num- number one. And you know with her. You, I think most of her friends would say that you, you felt so safe that if anything should ever happen to you, you know, she'd step in and, and mm. uh, fix it. Yeah. I didn't have her on my show. I think I had her on once. Uh-huh. But um, but we got to know each other at the end by going, you know, to theater when I was sort of done with my show and just in okay. New York. And, and so I would see her at every opening and every art gallery thing. And so then we started talking and, and uh, she'd usually be with Cindy Adams, who would do nothing but make fun of my outfit the entire evening. So it was a, a lot of stress, you know. <laughs> She's yeah. like, well, you couldn't find your gardening clothes? <laughs> like, okay, all right, that's a good one. Well, it's kind of it. like that in, in my book, I'd tell about how... Uh, we went to the um, oh, um, the, the LGBT uh, sort of synagogue. It was at the Javits Center, basically. Uh, this this uh, Kol Nidra service, and mm. and so I, I went with her, and we're just, she's standing up for the entire thing. And uh, I said, uh, I said afterwards, I said oh, it, was, it was very touching when um, when the, the old that old lesbian, the gray hair, you know, w- w- was with joined the men and carried the Torah down the aisle. I was very moved by that. And Joan said it'd be more moving if she'd washed her hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, there are people, Kathy's like that. Kathy Griffin has these wonderful salons, like the old time, you know, dames getting together in Hollywood. And um, she insists that you wear a dress and makeup. What do you do you now? Know? 
I did. I wore like some version of a dress, but it was a dress. I had tights, but it was a dress. And, um, and I went, you know, with lipstick. That was it. But oh my gosh, she said that I was banned for two of them for my dress in the in the one before. So you know, you got to really watch it with some of these girls. They really like the the whole look <laughs> th- to be right. That reminds me of uh, my friend Kathy, who basically has custody of me. You know, she <laughs> she's done my wigs for my whole career, and she wow. lives around the corner, and so she just takes care of me. And a- anyway, uh, she's she's gay, and and doesn't you know just always always in pants and everything and, and so we were gonna i think it was for um for some event it might have been my, my book party or something and uh i i saw so what are you gonna wear you know and and she's like she says I, I can't wear a dress the last the only time i've wore a dress was when i borrowed yours <laughs> <laughs> That's, that was true, that was true. <laughs> more with charles right after this from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, 
it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, talking about uh, similarities between you and I, we both had a heart attack. And you ignored it just like I did. Did, oh, did you ignore it? Yeah. I, I ignored I it. I, I thought I threw my back out. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> went to the chiropractor. Right. Yeah. At least you went somewhere. I stayed home for three days going, my arms really hurt. And everyone going, you look so pale. And me falling asleep and sweating. And every single sign you could Google, I had. But I went back to sleep. And, you know, the doctor said you were like 10 minutes away from being dead. What did you do? Tell everybody what you did when you, you thought it was um, a oh, chiropractic I, I, injury. Yeah, I thought, oh, I put, put my back out and, and went to the chiropractor who cracked me in three places. And and I told him, this guy, I said, oh, I have this weird pain down my arm. And <laughs> yeah, right. He goes, I don't want to crack you. you know? And then uh, months went by and I started losing all this weight and I had the good days and not so good days and Finally, you know, I, I know. I always assume I have cancer. Right, I, me too. If I stub my toe, it's cancer. You know, me too. Me uh, too. Anyway, I, I finally, uh, I called my friend, the allergist, who Barry Cohn, my play was inspired by, and whatever I told him, he said, uh, uh, he said, hold, I'm putting on hold. He called a gastroenterologist at Weill Cornell, who, who then said he'd see me right away, and I went there and. And this, this young gastroenterologist said, you know, so let, let me just listen to your heart. And he had this weird look on his face. Yeah, yeah. He said, you know, he said, I, I think you need to go to the fourth floor, the fourth right away. cardiology <laughs> to have an EKG and, and an echo or whatever. And so I, I went down to the fourth floor and the waiting room was filled up with people. And now I had, I had just been nominated for a Tony Award, you know, so I thought, I thought, <laughs> you know, they put, they rushed me through. I thought it was because I'm a celebrity, you know. Of course, you're well known, death. well known. Yeah, they thought I was near death. And, right. And they give me the, they do this echo on me and the room starts filling up with people. And I thought, oh God, I am in trouble. And mm-hmm. so, indeed, I'd had an aortic aneurysm which wow. would kill Jonathan Larson and John Ritter, you know, within an hour. But mm. I you know, ran around for three months. Oh, and, and so then, uh, they, you know, the doctors said to, you know, took me in her little room and said, "You can't go home. You have to have open heart surgery within the next forty eight hours, and you can't go home." And and I, this the surgeon was right there, you know, in the scrubs, and I guess he thought I might get the hell out of there. And he he said, "Mr. Bush, what you've had kills most people within the hour." You were lucky once. You will not be lucky again. I said, I'm, mm. I'm with you. I'm coming. I'm Go ahead. Scrub yeah. me in. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to go. Ready to go. And, and that was, I have to say that uh, this was, that was in 2001. And um, it really did divide my life in half. And in, in a certain sense, um, you know, the, the feelings I had as a child that were, you know, being kind of fragile, all of a sudden kind of came back in a way. As, mm. I, I don't know if I've ever really been quite had the same arrogance of, oh, my body, you know, nothing's going to yeah, happen to me. And, exactly. And I, had, I had another surgery um, uh, this, uh, uh, last December. Yeah, Another had, heart one. Yeah, I had to have uh, this time. The aortic, aortic valve is gorgeous, 
but the <laughs> uh, but now the mitral valve is a problem and it, it wasn't nearly as dramatic you know but but i had you know they cracked me open and and it was and i said to the when i met with the surgeon it was uh the head of my old doctor uh, old surgeon uh, dr Girardi, is now the head of the whole you know cardiac you know surgery thing at Wild Cornell and I said now Dr. Jardy I said you in in my world of showbiz it, it's always best when the director of the original picture directs the sequel <laughs> um, you know, he said, I will do the next surgery and and then it was kind of I thought it was a little weird so uh, I go in the hospital and then you know after I get out of you know surgery and I wake up you know the doctors all come in the room and and Dr. Jardy said it's all went well we were able to uh we were able to replace. We were able to repair the the mitral valve, not replace it. And then he said, "You know." And while I was in there, I have to tell you, <laughs> my my work from two thousand one really held up. I mean, it really looks great, and I, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, exactly. And for me. <laughs> but now, do you think? Do you spend a lot of time thinking why did I survive that? Uh, no. I do. I spend a lot really? of time. Really? What, what you, is it a guilt feeling? It, or? Well, it was three days instead of three months for me. But, you know, when I got there, like the doctor was like, why didn't you come in? You had, so, the, you know, the pain must have been unbelievable. How did you yeah. not, you know, and, and I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, it's so weird, Charles. What was going through my head is what if the ambulance really needs to go to an accident and I'm just, you know, having a panic attack? What if, like, I kept thinking I wasn't deserving of going to get checked? Isn't that weird? That's very weird. Oh, but then as I did in a research about women's heart attacks afterwards, yeah. um, I found it's a commonplace that yeah. women are so kind of subjugated that, you know, men have a pain in their chest. They're in the ER before they, you know, finish their coffee, yeah. right? Women have a pain in their chest. They call their friend. I called Linda Richmond. And I said to her, here are my symptoms. Do you think I'm having a heart attack? I went to therapy, said to my therapist, do you think I'm having a heart attack? And I slept two nights with full heart attack um, with 100% blockage of my LAD. And what they told me in the hospital, Martin wow. Luther King's eldest daughter had the same one that I had, the Widowmaker, and right. she was dead before she hit the ground. And they kept saying that to me, and I was like, yeah. yeah. How did I? How did I do it? And was my mom involved? And yeah, I yeah. don't know. Like I, I kind of, I have magical thinking still when it comes yes, to death. Yes, yes. No, I actually, I had, a, I had a kind of moment, interesting moment when, uh, in the, the first time in two thousand one, where, um, oh, because when I got when I got back from the hospital after a week, I, I was I was home and I was watching TV and I had this weird episode where suddenly I had complete amnesia of the of what had happened and I was home a week and I I you know I looked down at my chest I saw these bandages and I said what the hell is this I started pulling them off and my friend Carl was was there and he said you had heart surgery you know uh, mm. you know, a week ago and, and or a couple of weeks ago and anyway after about an hour it all came back to me but I went back into the hospital and I think it, it turned out it was like some little bit of anesthesia something that floats through your brain or something kind mm. of but anyway, when I was in the hospital again to check see I, if I did, had a stroke or something, they put me in this kind of MRI machine, and I, and I really did have this very Spielbergian moment all of a sudden because mm. I, I where I, I it's very out of character for me, but I, I did feel like the ghosts, some of the spirits of my mother and and my aunts were kind of floating above, and and I kind of 
gate. I, I was so depressed. I was just in such a low. I, I said, I, I just, I surrender. I just surrender. Mm. And, mm. and I, I did feel this incredible feeling of love. And I, you know, I, I'm just not that kind of, you know, I'm really not that kind of person, but I, right, right. I, I did feel this extraordinary moment. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think happens after we die? You think we linger? Do you think our spirits are accessible to earthlings still? I, what, what do you I think? I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to feel all this thing. I, I, you know, I was raised with no religion at all. Mm. Absolutely. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I generally think nothing happens, but I sure like to believe it. I'd, yeah, I'd, me too. Like, I'd like to believe it. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I get like yeah. carried away in the in the magical, mystical. I love the the part in the book where you talked about uh, AIDS and and the people you lost and what it was like living through that. It must have been very hard that part. Y- yes, yes. It, it really for my generation, um, it's it's a bit of our World War Two. And we, we kind of talk about it, I think, to, to younger people about, you know, those days. And, uh, yeah, it just, um, it was, it was an odd period because in a certain sense, my career had t- finally taken off and, and, uh, and it, it was like the best of times, the worst of times. Mm. Yeah, and, and then our, our, you know, I had my own theater company for seven years and, you know, and we had th- th- three of our, you know, our family, um, died so, so, so terribly. And you know, we just it, the memorial service really was our our, our art form. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we gave completely. Some, yeah, yeah, and and all you know the the lesbians uh, taking care of their sick brothers. Like I, I, I Laurie always talks about uh-huh. making that movie. You know, like where where the lesbians were right on the front line with everyone. You know, yes, and, uh, yes, it's so true because so. So often, gay men and gay women have so little to do with each other. Mm. And uh, in yeah. the olden days, like when we were kids, yeah. But yeah. nowadays, it's all gender queer fluid, Different. right? Yeah. Everybody's together. Yeah. yeah, back in the day, it really was so separated, and rather, and both sides were rather cri- critical of each other. Exactly, I, mean, I remember that vividly. The crisis when when there are so many instances of 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 gay women coming. Well, I'm getting very choked up talking about it. Yeah. Just gay women coming in, stepping up, and, and yes. really being in the forefront of, of, of uh, caring for these gay men. Yeah, that's a story I'd love to, to be a part of telling. Well, Charles, you're delightful. I love you very much. I always have. You're one of the best playwrights around. You're an amazing actor. You're a wonderful p- person and, and performer and friend. And uh, I just want to thank you for being in my life and for saying yes to my crazy desire to produce Tepu. And, um, you know, your book, Leading Lady, everyone go get it, Charles Bush. And um, you'll love it. It's a wonderful, wonderful story of a very full and interesting life of an artist. And you certainly are. Well, thank you, Ro. It's so good to see you. And we have wonderful memories together. I I, totally. I, I, I've mellowed, and and I can really enjoy. I can think I can appreciate taboo, and I can also uh, just yeah, just think about the that extraordinary cast of young people. Yes, they were so they great. were wonderful moments, and you know, it was chaos though. Make no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but we survived. We, we survived. survived. Damn it. <laughs> well, I love you. Take care of yourself. Give my love to everybody in your mishpucha. I sure will. Bye. All right, honey. Take care. We'll be back with questions from you, the lovely listeners, so don't go away.
Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charles Bush is really a unique individual, and I love him so much. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, let's hear from you, the listeners. I hear we got someone from Long Island. Hit it. Hi, Rosie. This is Jennifer from Long Island, New York. I always felt like I connected with you because we're both from the same area of Long Island. Anyway, I really enjoyed watching your show in the 90s, even though I was in college and grad school at the time and I didn't have a lot of time to watch TV. I always made sure I taped your show. I'm aging myself there. Um, but I always made sure I taped your show, especially when there was a guest that I really liked or someone from daytime TV or a Broadway performance. 
I loved watching your show then. And I'm really enjoying reconnecting with you on your podcast um, with your authenticity. Anyway, I had a question about the guide dog experience that you've been having. I wanted to know more about that. Um, I have physical issues myself, so I always um, think about getting a guide dog in the future. Right now I have a little cat that I don't think would appreciate that very much. But um, my dentist actually has a therapy dog in the dentist's office, um, which is the greatest thing ever. And um, I just always thought about getting my own um, guide dog or therapy dog in the future. So if you could talk more about that experience, that would be great. Anyway, thanks, Rosie. Hope you have a good day. Bye. Thanks, Jennifer, from Long Island. I'm from Comac, exit 52. I wonder where you were, if you were ever at the flea market at the Long Island Arena, because I was there often buying all my school clothes. Um, listen, I'm in the middle of my experience with Guide Dogs of America. I uh, was actually visiting someone who was in prison, and I saw the Guide Dogs, there was like a little tour, and I saw the Guide Dogs being trained by the prisoners, and I started to talk to them, and and uh, in the group was the man who is the president of Guide Dogs of America, a lovely man. And we talked for a while, and um, I told him that I had an autistic child. And and he said, you know, that we provide dogs for autistic kids for free. And I was like, what? And um, they're trained to um, comfort the child, to apply deep pressure when the child is maybe um, out of control and, or spinning or stimming in a way that's dangerous for them. Um, they work with children who elope, although my child does not elope, which is, you know, running away without understanding the danger. Um, but they, they do so much uh, for autistic kids. They, they do obviously for people who are blind. They do for people who suffer from uh, PTSD, especially veterans. Uh, I'm not sure what the qualifications or the rules are for people who are looking to get one. I only know for autistic children. And it's a very long application process, as you would imagine. It's a long waiting period. We don't know yet if we've been approved. We're going to wait to find out. And, you know, they go by need. So, Every child has has different needs, and every kid with autism is unique to themselves, and and, and so we'll see. We we hope that we get one, but even if we don't, we're going to continue to support the organization. And they also have uh, emotional support dogs, which are not as highly trained, obviously, as the guide dogs. But um, guide dogs for America, look it up on Google. Good luck to you. I wish you all the best, and thanks for listening to me when you were in college. Fantastic. We got one more from Pennsylvania, I hear. Hit it. Hey, Ro. This is Jen, 41, living in Pennsylvania. So listen, when I had just turned 11, my mom let uh, my brother, my friend, and I go to see a league of their own at the discount movie theater in Philly called The Devon. Um, I had been wanting to see it, but... She was a single mom, so she was not trying to pay those uh, regular movie prices. She drove us there, dropped us off, picked us up. It was the first time we were able to go to the movies completely by ourselves. 
with no adult we thought we were. So cool. Fell in love with the movie. Um, it was really empowering to me as a young female. I felt very seen. Couldn't really figure it out at the time. Um, but I now know why. And also, I was a softball player. And it just made me feel like, yeah, duh, of course, women and girls can do anything and everything. Why did it take a war for women to be able to play? Uh, but I got the movie on VHS and then on DVD. And I really do like know almost every word. Um, so been a fan. Obviously, watch your show because I'm of that age. Um. So my question for you is, my wife and I just purchased a home a few weeks ago, pretty exciting, and we officially move in in a few days. We've been at the new house doing work to get it ready. Um, so my question for you is, what do you like to do when you move into a new home to make it your own? What are your priorities? Is it your bedroom? I mean, obviously it would be right now, like Dakota's room, the kids' rooms, but is it your art space? And also, um, you got a lot of money, so people probably do all the things for you. But is there anything you like to do for yourself? Do you like to paint a room by yourself? Um, I don't know. Go out and buy some furniture, put it together. So, yeah. What do you like to do to make a home your own? I appreciate you, Rosie. Uh, thanks for being so open um, and authentically you. Thank you, Jen41 from Pennsylvania. That's very, very sweet. 11 years old, going to the movies by yourself. I remember that feeling completely and feeling like such a big kid, right? But um, what do I like to do in a home? I like to get it to smell good, number one. So I like other people's schmutz out of it. So whether that be sanding and not myself, always people to do this for me, sanding and staining the floors a different way or putting in hardwood floors everywhere or matching, make sure the wood matches in the, in the house. And, and the smell is, is so vital. You know, I love, uh, candles that, that are really well made and they smell like, like the fall and they smell like, uh, like you're in a a safe and warm place. It's definitely the smell. I love really nice comforters and blankets. I, I now have a weighted blanket. Um, Dakota, we got one for Dakota, and they did not like it at all. And so it was late at night in the bed, and I just pulled it over on me. And now I can't sleep without it. But um, I like nice, nice blankets and... You know, I like my house to be clean. My house as a kid, you know, motherless, it was not very clean. And uh, I like it to be clean. I have people come over, go, how your whole life of having this many kids, can you have white furniture? And first time I ever went into somebody's house that was really rich was Madonna's in uh, Florida. And she had all white furniture and it was gorgeous. And I remember thinking, if I ever get rich one day, I'm going to have a house like this. So all of my uh, taste in, in, in that, I think, comes from seeing a real live house like that looked like a magazine and, and figuring out as I got older and, and more successful that I could, in fact, have that. And so uh, I like to create that for my family, for my children, for myself. Thank you, Jen. And, and during my free time, I like to do art and uh, craft. And so this 
wonderful room here where I do my podcast is also going to become the craft room. That's what I've decided. Hey, listen, if you want to leave a comment, send a voice memo, record it, and send it to onwardrosie at gmail.com. We look forward to your thoughts and questions and comments. And next week, join me with award-winning director, screenwriter, and groundbreaking filmmaker, Cheryl Dunier. Like many artists, Cheryl could not find within the existing framework anywhere that she was represented. So she made a new path that was so necessary, not only for herself, but for so many others. She's a groundbreaking independent filmmaker, and uh, she's African-American, she's gay, she's smart, she's brilliant, and I love talking to her. So look for that. Till then, everyone, do your best. Keep your heart bubble-wrapped, please. Onward, people. Onward. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.